0: Welcome to Why Advice, a regular podcast that aims to demystify and extol the benefits of financial advice. I'm Daniel Crow, and I'm joined by Tristan Nellis, a financial advisor at Mansell Financial Group. In this episode, we're going to start off with a few basics and we'll have a discussion with Peter Mansell. He's a man with a lot of experience and has a wealth of knowledge in financial advice, so we think you'll enjoy that. Now, Tristan, I guess we're at a first question, and that is, why have we started the world's six billionth podcast?
1: Well, Daniel, I suppose primarily, we really want to talk about real financial advice, um, more so than the hearsay that's available in the general media stream. We want to talk about uh, linking advice with your lifestyle, your goals, and your money, not just about one particular topic. And ultimately, uh, we see it as a real opportunity to you know, fulfill that real need to help people in a complex and dynamic world.
0: So I guess one of the things that we see a lot of the time is um, people, they always focus on investing and it's more about linking uh, your money with your life or your goals. And financial advice is a really good way of doing that. And I guess the the first thing we talk about is our advice process. And I guess it really starts off by asking the question, um, what's important to you? I mean that that gets back to your goals, family, lifestyle, your community, your career, how you feel about any of your current investments, what sort of retirement you want to have, and what's important about your health, and what's what's your ideal lifestyle.
1: And also too, Jan, it's about accountability. That's where we see our role as keeping uh, people on track and accountable for. Uh, you know, their financial aspects of where they actually are and where they're going. And I think without that accountability, I think a lot of people get uh, down the wrong path and then throw their hands up in the air, uh, make some wrong decisions, look to other avenues for support and advice. And I think accountability is a big part of what uh, we assist our clients with.
0: So when, when you say accountability, what are some of the things that, um, how have you give some examples how you've kept Uh, clients accountable over the years?
1: Well, I suppose when you initially start with the clients out identifying what their goals and objectives are, uh, it's interesting when you first meet with people, they often are happy just to share all the financial aspects of their life. I like to then just go, well, let's rewind a little bit and let's talk about your goals and objectives, and then let's identify, identify what they are, and then look at the means, the assets, the income, the liabilities, those sorts of things to then identify the link between the the money and the goals. Once that's underway and you've got a client uh, on track, um, then it's a matter of reviewing and ensuring that, you know, you say what you're going to do and also it's, it's a mutual relationship. You know, the clients also need to make sure that they're following the advice that is actually going to better their position to achieve their goals and objectives. So it's a two-way stream.
0: When you when you say that, let's just say you've had a rough market or a flat market, and there haven't been returns that um, a client may well have expected, even though you know you should really expect nothing to begin with. How how do you uh, deal with someone who comes in and says, "Oh, I've heard about this great thing. Um, I'm thinking about this other thing. This." Like, cause there's, there's always all these temptations and urges out there. How do, you, how do you deal with that?
1: Well, I tell people that we play a long-term game. We run marathons. We don't do a hundred meter sprints. Um, it's the tortoise versus the hare. Uh, you know, sadly too many people want to be the hare and they want to identify what's hot.
0: Yeah, obviously discipline is a, is a really big thing.
1: Discipline, patience, um, you know, not trying to go in with the crowd. Uh, you know, there are tried and tested methods of actually getting sound returns over time. Um, many people don't because of the fact that um, they chop and change, they change their strategy. So identifying your strategy from the outset, identifying what risk profile you should be and what you can tolerate and then effectively staying the course.
0: I guess in the end, you've got to find clarity and clarity is something that people are after right now. I guess this is a good good example with interest rates. Um, they're prompting some realizations. People are panicking. They may be making some interesting decisions if they're out there by themselves trying to trying to DIY it. Uh, people are saying this sort of thing is unprecedented and you can't plan now around safety and certainty because you can't get a, a really good rate at the bank anymore. But, Uh, When you're talking about safety and certainty, there was was never any safety and certainty because when you think back, even when interest rates were high in the early 90s, some people made assumptions around 18% rates and assumed that would be their whole retirement. And within two years, they're 6%. And then your retirement dreams on 18% are up in smoke. So just sort of wondering what sort of themes you're seeing when people walk in the door. Cause I know you've had um, some conservative investors uh, scratching their heads who've, I guess, been going okay DIY for a while and now they don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, that's true, Daniel. Um, the, the main sort of themes, like I say, it's it's what's hot uh, after pay for one people are looking for the next after pay uh, properties hot and certainly the low interest rates at a bank. People need to understand that risk and return are related and you can't expect any return unless you take some risk. And sadly, uh, you know, if you don't enter that that envelope of risk, you can't expect any return other than what you're getting in the bank. Um, You know, a couple of years ago, everyone wanted to know what Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were. Uh, And I'm sure that with the Bitcoin price rising of late, I'm sure... That'll probably start to hit the media pages and start to feed a few uh, speculators' interests, uh, and also to maybe you know more people will perhaps take on a bit more risk than they really understand. Not just with Bitcoin cryptocurrencies, but other asset classes as well.
0: I think we had a, a more interest in in gold earlier this year. People were asking questions about gold again, and the thing is, they never ask questions about gold when. It spent, I guess, five or six years, seven years, going nowhere. But as soon as it shot up in value, people want to know about it again. And uh, I guess you could say the time to time to buy wasn't um, when it's gone up. It's got to be looking at these things when when they're low. Not that we um, advocate gold, but it's just one of those things that happens. People see something shooting for the moon, and then they wonder, wonder if, it's, if it's time for them to jump on.
1: Yes, that's right. And you know, consideration of uh, people taking $10,000 and $20,000 out of super with the recent COVID uh, release of super funds, a lot of people have been fairly fortunate in you know, picking a, an upward market after they've been able to get uh, you know, their hands on some super funds. But there's been some equally tragic stories as well.
0: Yeah, I actually saw one where um, a guy was down to his last. Uh, I think he, I think he'd uh, taken his super out and he'd he'd lost eighty percent of it, and he was uh, casting around on the Facebook stock tip groups trying to trying to get something that was going to uh, bring it all back for him.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's always a bit of a tough one. Um, you know, if you try and time the market and you fail the only way that you can really claw back a lot of those losses is to effectively take more risk. But how are you going to deal with that?
0: Uh, One of the things that we were were going to get into was good advice is linking your money with your life. We saw something recently and we all know uh, the Barefoot Investor and we enjoy the letters that he gets and um, responds to. I remember him having to defend uh, them at some stage that these letters weren't made up. And I guess we can tell you that they aren't made up because people contact us with interesting stories all the time. But the story that we saw that uh, the person had written into him, uh, the, it, was, it was a wife of a couple. And I guess we'll just, I'll just read it out and, and we can have a bit of a discussion about it. As a result of recently selling our multi-generation family business, my husband and I are now $34 million wealthier after tax. We have gone to see a firm that specializes in helping ultra high net worth families like ours. The portfolio they have recommended is not open to the general public. It is only for sophisticated private equity funds and the like. There are multiple fees that add up to around 1%. Though They say they will have stronger returns than we could expect from the share market. My husband thinks they sound great, but I'm not sure. I told him I was writing to you for your opinion and he laughed your thoughts?
1: Well, I suppose there's a, you know, we can unwrap quite a bit in that. Um, you know, the wife's writing to Scott Pate for free advice. Um, you know, it's important to identify, uh, you know, think what he actually,
0: value. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say he actually notes um, in his response, we'll, we'll get to his response in a minute, but he actually notes um, that, you know, take my advice with a grain of salt because it, uh, it is is free.
1: That's, that's exactly right. But people are seeking, um, seeking advice uh, at minimal cost a lot of the time. Um, it's yep. identifying the value. But really, I suppose the important core of this um, aspect is identifying what the goals of the family are. It's not all about the money.
0: Yeah, I think what, what stood out for me was a couple of things. Just coming through from, I mean, you don't know exactly what's happened, but... Um, they're being definitely sold on complexity because um, she's referenced um, it's only for sophisticated private equity funds and the like, and this is not open to the general public. So they've obviously said to her, This is obviously one of the selling points that whoever the advisor is has put before them. Uh, she doesn't seem to be buying it. Um, they don't have any clarity. The husband and wife aren't on the same page because. She's writing into the barefoot investor and uh, he's, he's laughing about it and thinks it sound great. Sounds great. But um, yeah. I th- well, he's, he's, yeah, he sold on the stronger returns. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, There's the thing that that you've got to take away from that is you're setting yourself up possibly for failure and a fairly uh, tumultuous relationship because if those higher returns that they're promised don't eventuate, where do they go for, from then? I mean, what's, what's their next message?
1: Mm, that's
0: right. And, and you've got to say that $34 million is a lot of money to be confused with. It sure is. But I guess well, I'll just take a look at uh, what the Bev said. And while I guess, as you said, you're getting, getting what you pay for, but uh, he did reference Harvard University's endowment fund that they've basically been scouring the world looking for you know the best strategies, and they actually haven't been beating index funds. So he's saying, "I would focus on simplifying your life." and he goes into like a farming analogy. Uh, if you focus on harvesting dividends, you'll earn close to a million dollars a year, but I guess what's the million for because they haven't decided what their goals are and what's being addressed.
1: Yeah, that's what I said before about, you know, identify what your goals and objectives are first and then wrap around that what assets you have uh, to produce income needs. Too much too much focus on, on the money side of things, I believe.
0: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we don't agree with these methods from the point that they're not using... I guess we focus on using evidence, which is uh, we look at things like markets work, uh, risk and reward, diversification, asset allocation, and staying disciplined on, on the whole whole thing. And they're also not using a goals-based or life-based, values-based process because the big sale here is around the returns. Is that inherently bad? Well, in the end, it, maybe you'll work out for the client or it won't, but uh, that's how some advisors do these things.
1: That's right, and it's identifying, you know, what value is that firm going to provide? Is there other um, aspects of what they're actually providing for that cost of benefit? And like I said, link that back to accountability on both parties.
0: Yeah, so there's another issue that we've seen several times too, and um, we move on to that as well. So. This is advisors doing uh, or using the title of financial advice or financial advisor to do some disreputable things. And we'd like to think that the uh, industry had been cleaned up, but it doesn't seem that it has because we've seen a few instances of a super switching scam that's been going on. And interestingly enough, like just for the fact that we're a small firm in, in Tasmania and we've seen how many instances of this have you seen
1: over the years, it'd be about half a dozen.
0: Right. So can you explain so, the, yeah. yeah, can you explain what actually happens?
1: Yes, yeah, so I had a, a few people come in. Uh, they primarily received a cold call. And this was actually uh, even just recently, despite the fact that uh, financial advisors have a new code of ethics to adhere to. Uh, the conversation would lead <laughs> around just moving their funds across generally from industry super funds, well run, uh, generally cost effective, relatively low balances as well, uh, moving them across to uh, active fund management with higher uh, fees, uh, four to 5% uh, entry cost, um, which goes straight to the firm. Yeah. And um, now this particular example, I had uh, the young fellow, um, he was uh, in, in trades, didn't understand super like a lot of people, uh, received a call out of the blue, his $100,000 in a quality industry fund. They said, yep, yeah, we, can, we can do better than what you've uh, currently got. Um, and then for that privilege, charged him $4,000, left a small amount in the industry fund until they got him sorted with some insurance. And I'd said to him, "Well, how much did insurance did they recommend?" And uh, they they quoted half a million dollars was needed. And I said, "What conversation uh, was around that to identify that that was the needed amount?" He said, "Oh, there wasn't any." Uh, and then proceeded to apply for insurance uh, for him. He had some pre-existing health conditions, uh, and effectively, yeah. So what they did was that it was a, a quick money hit. It was a quick hit for an um, upfront and the ongoings were well over 2% uh, on top of the administration and the fund manager fees. And actually in this particular instance, the risk profile was the same, whereas I have met some where they've just increased the risk profile a bit. Um, and uh, that, was, that was their selling pitch. Oh, we will do better. Probably not dissimilar to our prior uh, barefoot investor where uh, we, we will have stronger returns. Now, how, how do they guarantee that? Um, they don't,
0: in this instance, it's just basically a, a a lure, I guess, to start off the churn process because they're churning um, the, the people that they're getting over from an industry super fund over to, we won't name where it's going, but it gets them the $4,000 out of his account
1: um, that that was about the first thing that came out. As soon as, yeah. as soon as the as soon as the super funds had rolled over into the new super account, uh, the fee went out. Yeah. Um, it, the work hadn't been finished yet. <laughs> Unlike we we don't we don't bill our clients until the work is done and the clients are happy. But they took the fee out straight away. Um, sadly, in this particular instance, I've followed up with the young gentleman and he hasn't provided any further information. I've also come across a few other. Uh, prospective clients that I've met with to try and help them, but they haven't progressed uh, taking this to another level to uh, make a complaint. And I'm not sure whether or not that's, there's a bit of pride there um, that's sort of holding them back.
0: It's the interesting thing that on this, on, I think all the occasions, it was always the same firm, wasn't it? Uh,
1: It was like a like firm. Um, Yeah. They were very, very similar using the same, Retail product, Um, same
2: process.
1: Same 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 process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was you know uh, basically sort of um, get in, do what you can, get the money over, get the get the fees happening, uh, hold off on the insurance, and be interesting to see what what actually happens here. Whether or not there'll be a review process that actually occurs. Uh, and how um, things progressed.
0: Was there one instance where the insurance or they'd actually shut down on the industry super side and and the guy actually had a specific insurance that he needed for some sort of
1: medical issue? I did clarify that and I thought that, but no, apparently um, it was just lack of clarity on the the client's side. Uh, And that's another thing. He was just unsure of what was going on dealing with an organization that was on the mainland that just dealt by phone
0: yeah it's in it's it's a constant battle really because you have on one side people don't want to pay and then they want something that's free so they'll write into the barefoot investor they'll write into advice columns in the newspaper and you know i've got X amount of dollars and I don't want to pay a cent. Can you tell me what the best course of action is here? And then on this instance, we you see actually people who've been rung up, they're sort of, I don't know, I guess you could say caught off guard. They don't have the right information. And then they don't know that they're really being ripped off until it's been explained to them that they've had, you know, they've, they've been charged $4,000 for this service that they've had done. And, it's just an interesting juxtaposition because he's really had had nothing done for him. He's just been ripped off. And what can you do?
1: Well, it's trust. It's interesting that I think we live in a day and age where we perhaps don't trust people as much as we used to, or I'm I'm finding that. Um, But yet there was just an inherent trust straight away that, oh, well, he said that um, he'd make me more. Yeah. So you know, and it was, and then possibly it was, it was the first time that actually someone had engaged with him, uh, to to about super. Whereas before, in an industry fund, uh, you know, things were just ticking along, just minding their own business, doing what they do, and then yeah, possibly the first time someone took an interest is just going, oh well, they must have my best interests at heart.
0: Well, that's interesting you say that because we obviously deal with some super funds, and haven't we had um, communications with them before where? they have basically said, we cannot get people to engage.
1: Yeah, that's, that's just I think people are, the complexity just around superannuation, um, you know, as we know, most people don't have a budget. They're living from day to day, pay to pay. And I suppose the media have a massive impact on, you know, I, I believe that we believe that we're actually going to live for a long time but yet we spend like there's no tomorrow. So it's difficult to try and find that right balance.
0: Yeah, that's right. All right, so hopefully uh, us talking about it can bring some awareness and save some people, but I guess they've they've got to see this or hear this podcast to actually know about it, that it's actually going on. But just the fact that we've had half a dozen of these over the past 18 months, two years, it's just... It's interesting. So it, they must be doing a fair trade out of out of basically ripping. How much they're going to charge three four grand out of people super on the on the industry super side and, and transferring them over to uh, a um, retail fund that they're going into.
1: Yeah, that's right. Hopefully we don't uh, we don't get many more. But it's sadly, I think that um, uh, people will be sold promises quite easily.
0: Yeah. All right, thanks, Tristan. I guess that's the first uh, episode of, of us, and I guess we'll move on to Peter's chat. Right, so uh, we're joined by Peter Mansell, he runs the business we work for, Mansell Financial Group. And uh, if we're talking about financial advice, I think it's probably the best place to start because this year Peter and my Mansell Financial Group celebrated 40 years in the industry. So uh, congratulations and welcome to Y Advice, Peter. Thanks,
1: Daniel. Right. Peter, you started out want- wanting to be a teacher and also a cricketer. Uh, You played at the state level and the cricket aspect morphed into coaching. So did these things help in any way uh, in becoming an advisor?
2: I'd have to say they do. Um, Coaching others back in the sporting days, of course, was trying to help those people to get a better outcome from their sporting endeavours. And uh, advising clients has really been very much about coaching. Some might even say teaching, but just One, if you like, pupil or student at a time, you know, having firstly the privilege and then the opportunity to help others make better decisions with money, of course, helps them to enjoy their life more broadly. Um, So I think it's got a lot of similarities to coaching at at a sporting level indeed.
0: I was thinking when uh, someone celebrates a milestone, they're often asked um, what about the industry has changed and and the response is often around things like technology. Like you'll see people who've worked for like a car dealership for a long period of time and they're retiring or something like that and they'll ask them what's changed and they'll go through a list of technology changes and things like that. And we know that in financial advice, it's sort of moved toward, towards being more client focused. But so what I'm interested in over 40 years, what changes have you seen in the clients in that time, if any?
2: I think that 40 years ago, uh, the community more broadly and consumers of financial services really did understand that they were being sold products and services by particularly big institutions um, if you go back to when I started in the industry in 1980, you know the major four banks, uh, the top five or six, you know life insurance companies, uh, basically uh, those together with just a few big stockbroking firms dominated the financial advice landscape. Um, but it was really financial product sales, and over the the last 40 years, we've seen a huge change to a point where uh, particularly in the the non-aligned or, or independent advisor space, that the advisors are actually sitting alongside the clients, making sure that everything they do is absolutely for the client's advantage. They're actually ensuring that every action they take is about getting a better result for the client, and and product sale has become um, just a byproduct of the advice that's going to help clients to get better outcomes. So I'd say the the real quantum shift for clients is that they're now expecting to get advice from people who are acting for them. And they're as a result, much more willing to accept that advice. And they want deeper ongoing relationships with their advisors and they don't expect to have products sold to them.
1: Hmm. Peter, a lot of people may not understand that there's a lot of research and developing processes behind the scenes with advisory businesses for the benefits of clients. So with that in mind, we're a member of the Global Association of Independent Advisors. This group in a way dates back to the early 2000s. Can
2: you tell us how it came about and why? Well, the the Global Association of Independent Advisors, as you said, you know its genesis really uh, was back in the early 2000s. Uh, there was a group of advice firms that just happened to be at a particular conference, got to know each other a little through that conference environment and then subsequent conference environments um, and, and went on study tours together and the like and realised that we had an awful lot in common. And it all started with putting client's interests first, and then secondly, making sure that the processes that we used were backed by genuine evidence. There was was real data behind all of the portfolio construction techniques, the advice delivery techniques that we were using. And this was garnered from some of the world's absolute leading people in finance. Um, I and a number of my colleagues in the association, were lucky enough to spend time at the University of Chicago in 2003 and 2004 and 2005, you know, and we got to listen to, you know, multiple Nobel Prize winning economists um, and, and it's the, the learning from them and the evidence that we can then rely upon to use processes that get clients better results they've been the key drivers behind that association. And and the benefits that have flowed from that, of course, now flow back to clients uh, in the form of more reliable investment processes um, uh, through learning, knowing how we could drive costs for managing portfolios down, and and knowing also how we could better react to when market conditions change.
0: Yeah. I guess on um, on the goals-based and the the evidence-based um, area. A couple of months ago, there was a kind of a humorous piece in in the Australian by Robert Gottliebson, and he's been around for 50 years as a as a journalist, and um, he was kind of almost almost boasting that he'd been talking to the head guys at IWOF, and they'd been developing this uh, revolutionary concept of uh, goals based advice. And uh, we know that uh, goals based advice has you know been around probably since maybe the late 80s, early 90s. I'm not exactly sure. When, when it started, but um, obviously the the big guys now are scratching around looking for what to do next, and I guess slowly they're getting there. So I was just wondering where you thought uh, the you see these large organisations who still have funds and platforms and advisors, um, where you think they're actually heading?
2: Well, I think that uh, goals based advice or, or, or values based advice. Is, is critical to good advisor client relationships at the end of the day if the advisor's not you know primarily focused on helping the client to live their ideal life the life that they'd really prefer if they could get all of their financial resources harnessed in the most efficient way you know it makes sense that the big institutions would eventually realize that and and try to pursue it but it's also important for the end consumer to understand you know that they're doing it because they want to actually sell their product. Um, the advisors that aren't aligned to product manufacturers are doing it because it's actually what's best for the client. There's a, there's a very significant difference to the two. It's not surprising that the big institutions are trying to dress up values-based or goals-based advice as something that they want to pursue, but it's essential that consumers understand their real motivation. And the real motivation is still product distribution. For us, products are irrelevant. We're completely agnostic about what product or what platform that we use. We want to use the best building blocks we can find, in effect, the best products that we can find that are supported by the evidence that we know will best deliver for the client. But at the centre of everything is helping the client to have the life that they can have you know, using their resources in the best way possible.
1: And as a humble advisor myself, I've got my head buried in the client side of things. So I'm wondering what you are seeing as the big industry challenges at the moment.
2: Well, I think that trying to uh, find ways to, re- to reach more people um, across the country uh, to get good advice in a, in a cost-effective way is, is critical to the broader community um, and, and I think technology is going to play a big role in that. We're certainly very focused on, on the ways in which we can deliver, you know, quality advice and quality ongoing service, you know, through technology platforms that don't currently exist the way we would like them to today. Uh, I see that as the mechanism for getting good advice to a much bigger proportion of the population. Um, I think that, More and more, people are wanting experiences in their life um, far more than they want things. And and experiences routinely need money uh, to allow you to pay for them. But more importantly, they need time to be able to do them. And I think a lot of clients, particularly, you know, middle Australia and the affluent, the mass affluent, um, are looking for an advisor that can help them to stop worrying about money so they can spend their time doing the things with the people they care about and having the experiences that they really are gonna value going forward. So I think that there's um, two key uh, drivers is getting good advice to the masses. And I think technology is largely the solution there. And for those that want an ongoing relationship with an advisor and that are happy to pay for it, um, they're the ones that can really pursue uh, forgetting about money and just pursuing the activities that they want to pursue most with those they care most about.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, we had had this thing that we wanted to ask you about, and I guess it, it flows on from that because um, uh, it, it, there was a question It went into the barefoot investor, Scott Pape in his newspaper column recently. I was sort of wondering what your thoughts on it. Um, so I, I'll just read it, read it to you. Um, As a result of recently selling our multi-generational family business, my husband and I are now $34 million wealthier after tax. We have gone to see a firm that specialises in helping ultra-high net worth families like ours. The portfolio they have recommended is not open to the general public. It is only for sophisticated private equity funds and the like. There are multiple fees that add up to around 1%, though they say they all have stronger returns than we could expect from the share market. My husband uh, thinks they sound great, but I'm not sure. I told him I was writing to you for your opinion and he
2: laughed. Well, my response would be that uh, we now have a legislative environment uh, where all financial advisors have to take into account clients' broader circumstances, and they certainly can't just rely on the old corporation's law definition of a sophisticated investor just because somebody is $34 million richer, what that proves is they were very capable at running whatever business it was that they ran. They learned how to and successfully made a fortune. But that's a very different skill set to knowing how to keep a fortune. And I would say to any prospective investor, whether they had $34 million or $1 million to invest, that they should absolutely make sure they've got the best protections that are available to them under the Corporations Act and that they should be very, very wary of any uh, arrangement that's only for sophisticated investors and promises more. Uh, And the best possible example I could give you is, you know, when he decided to give away 80% of his wealth to the Gates Foundation, Warren Buffett, arguably the most successful investor, you know, certainly of the 20th century and beyond, um, insisted that that 80% of his wealth be invested in index funds, effectively buying the whole market. Now, if Warren Buffett can draw that conclusion, that that's the best long-term bet for 80% of his wealth that's intended to help others in the world, um, I would argue that the person with $34 million should consider a very similar approach.
1: Agreed. so to me, Peter, it, it still feels like a sale. They're being sold on complexity and exclusivity and she's come away without any clarity.
2: Absolutely, at the end of the day, if, if that lady um, wasn't convinced, it's probably because she wasn't given enough evidence to allow her to rationally choose that that was the right thing to do. and every investor, no matter how wealthy, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter how astute or unsophisticated, if they don't understand really clearly what it is that they're going to be investing in and, and absolutely hand on heart you know, believe that that's the right thing for them to do, they should not do it. As simple as that. If you don't understand it, if it's too complex to grasp, don't just take someone else's word for it. That's a recipe for severe disappointment, usually not too far down the track. Yeah,
0: and it, it looks like uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion there about goals. It's all, all quite focused on the investment and the sophistication of it, and that's what she's come away with. I don't think there's any kind of uh, idea about, um, you know, where they're going next.
2: Absolutely. It certainly didn't sound like it. You know, to me, whether someone's got $1 million or $34 million, um Everything should revolve around what they want the rest of their life to look like, and and what does the money have to do? What does it have to deliver so that they can live the lives they want to live? It's all well and good to focus just on returns, but at the end of the day, returns in any one asset class or indeed in any one asset can be very elusive. You know, it, it's a very quick trip from the penthouse to the basement. You know, for particularly you know exotic investments. Or you know, an investment which might involve taking significant risk, whether it be concentration risk, whether it be industry risk, whether it be asset class risk, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it usually doesn't take long to go from a peak to a trough. And if you've made a big bet that you're not at the peak and it's just going to keep going ahead, you probably just don't understand the risk. Uh, and on that basis, if you don't understand the risk, you shouldn't act.
0: Yep. So I guess in that situation, it sounds like those clients, uh, they definitely need advice because they don't seem to have any clarity, but um, I'm just wondering um, not everyone is going to be um, someone who needs advice or not. Maybe it's um, able to accept advice. So I'm just wondering what attributes um, do you think the best clients have? When I say best, um, the ones who are able to accept the advice and take it to reach their goals because you know, while um, everyone may benefit from financial advice, um, occasionally you're going to um, encounter people who will not have the personality that allows themselves to delegate and be coached.
2: Sure. Yeah, th- that's true. Look, there, there are people who, at the very core of their nature, uh, might have a gambling-type attitude to life, and, and they might want to, if you like, bet on the next big thing. Well, well someone with that, particular you know, nature at the core of their being, probably isn't gonna to wanna to take advice because they're gonna to wanna to look for the next big thing. Um, then you've got people who believe that they can know everything. And that's okay. You know, There are some absolute geniuses out there that can learn everything and good luck to them. But they're not the majority of people. The bulk of people that make good investors, that have good client relationships, understand one, they don't know everything, and two, they want to spend their time doing other things that they really enjoy with people they care about rather than continuously learning about issues to do with money. And I think that that's the most important thing. If if an individual has got issues in their lives that they're passionate about, have got family and friends that they want to spend time doing uh, or spend time with, they've got activities that they really enjoy doing, spend their time doing that. Don't spend their time worrying about money. Um, I think that the, the most important thing is, is accepting that you can't know everything and then deciding what's more important, the things that you enjoy doing and the people you want to spend time with.
1: Okay then Peter, so on that note, you've delivered many years of uh, quality advice. So what's the best piece of advice you've received?
2: Without doubt is, is learning that you can't make predictions very often, very successfully. You know, the average human being doesn't predict particularly well. And, and as a result, it, it, took, it took quite some years, you know, I've got fairly strong convictions and, and belief in my own ability, um, but it took some personal experiences to understand that, you know, maybe I couldn't predict things nearly as well as, as one might need to, if you're going to make predictions at all, and, and learning to accept that markets do what markets do, and then coming to a better understanding through really deep evidence that you don't predict what markets will do, you work with markets and, and let markets work for you. And so it was really a case of, of learning things like market efficiency, you know, for which Eugene Farmer won a Nobel Prize, you know, for learning, you know, for learning about the real benefits of diversification and, and, and why Harry Markowitz won a Nobel Prize for that work and, and, and learning that you know, there's no such thing as, as a high-return, low-risk investment for which Bill Sharp won a Nobel Prize. They're all you know, key points that are basically taken for granted now by everyone, uh, but it takes time to learn them. You know? and, and many, many years ago, I probably had opinions and, and wanted to make predictions that I thought were important. And over time, I've learned that they're really not. Thanks, Peter.
0: Um, just, just on that, um, you feel a sense of uh, whether it's uh, relief or um, more, you're more relaxed now that you actually understand that, and you're not um, relying on uh, forecasting or predictions or or anything down that that path anymore. You can just relax and let the market do it, do its thing.
2: Absolutely. Uh, There's no doubt. Uh, Yes, more relaxed. Um, I think more confident as well. um, Simply because you're not uh, relying on an outcome that you've got no control over. Um, At the end of the day, uh, if we look back over the last 40 years, and you you only need to think of 2020 to know this, but you can find a really bad event every year for the last 40 years. And, and, and that could give you reason not to invest. Uh, but if we look at capitalism over that time, you know, the global share markets have delivered about a 10 or 11% rate of return over that whole 40 years, despite every one of those really bad events. You know, whether it's COVID, whether it's a Gulf War, whether it's the stock market crash of 87, whether it's the OPEC oil crisis in 73, 74, these things all happen. And capitalism is still being successful. It may not be perfect, but it does work. And it gives me confidence that if you work with it, it'll work for you and deliver a very good investment experience. Yeah.
0: All right, Peter, that's uh, about all we've got time for, but uh a, Good chat, and um, I guess it shouldn't be too hard to get you back on sometime for another chat uh, if, you, <laughs> if you'll come back. Yeah, but thanks sure. for joining us on the first episode.
2: Okay. All right, for thanks, now. Peter. All right, thanks, you. Peter.
0: Bye. This podcast is for informational purposes only and the information contained is of a general nature and may not be relevant to your particular circumstances. The circumstances of each investor are different and you should seek advice from a professional financial advisor who can consider if particular strategies and products are right for you. In all instances where information is based on historical performance, it is important to understand this is not a reliable indicator of future performance. You should not rely on any material on the podcast to make investment decisions and should always seek professional advice. The hosts and guests of the podcast may have positions in securities mentioned or discussed. Mansell Financial Group is an authorized representative number 226266 and credit representative number Four zero three one eight seven of FYG Planners Proprietary Limited, AFSL ACL number two two four five four three. Thank you for listening to Why Advice.